0: Standing in the Field, a podcast by Perennia highlighting production practices, pest management and more for field crops in Nova Scotia. I'm your host and provincial field crop specialist, Caitlin Condon. My guest today is Tracy Bowdy, field crops entomologist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Tracy's work includes collaborating on applied research and demonstration projects to validate and determine practical integrated insect management solutions, monitoring for and implementing management strategies for new invasive species. She is a member of many industry groups and initiatives, including the Great Lakes and Maritimes Pest Monitoring Network and the Canadian Corn Pest Coalition. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about all things corn pests today, what we're dealing with here in Nova Scotia, some of what's happening in Ontario and elsewhere, and what we should be on the lookout for in the future. Before we get too far into it, I'll give a little bit of background on corn production here. So corn production in Nova Scotia hovers around 36,000 acres, with about half of that going for the silage or snaplage, some form of that, and the other half for grain. There's quite a few dairy farms across the province, so corn is a mainstay in those systems. But that's also where we see some continuous corn acreage, which I'm sure we will (laughs) touch on later with some of the pest concerns. We know that corn insect pests have the potential to have a big impact on not only the yield, but also the quality of our corn crop through things like compromising standability and providing an entry point for fungal infections and so on. European corn borer has been a hot topic in recent years with the discovery of BT resistant populations here in Nova Scotia and that leading to wide participation in monitoring for those populations throughout eastern Canada. So I think that's as good a place as any to start. Can you give us a brief update on where we are in the European corn borer saga? Yeah, it was definitely a aha uh-huh, oops
1: moment um and so it's got us much more aware now of corn borer it's mm-hmm. ironic corn borer has been in north america since 1911 it was oh, wow. uh, found about 30 kilometers or so from where i'm i'm uh, here in london at okay. uh, st thomas broom company so it's been spread and you think a pest that's been here for more than 100 years would be pretty manageable and mm-hmm. it was for a long time, but now we're back to having to really look at it again. And part of that is, obviously, BT was great at um, taking it down. Uh, in fact, some experts thought maybe we'd go to extinction with it. But, you know, mm-hmm. most pests, most pest people realize, no, pests don't let themselves go to extinction. They, <laughs> no. they adapt. And that's somewhat what we saw. Like, it's unfortunate. We were looking at the major corn growing areas and monitoring corn there. But we didn't mm-hmm. really think about the isolated pockets like Nova Scotia and even yeah. Manitoba and others that are using, sadly, maybe a little less novel hybrids because of mm-hmm. the lower heat units and a gro- so So it set us up, right, for a problem. As well, we're also seeing more host crops, other host crops like cannabis and quinoa. Mm-hmm. And there, there's two, over 200 host crops for corn borer. And so that's adding to the landscape, right? And so yeah. that's enabling them to potentially move or at least survive Bt corn. So yes, we have, because of this, really upped our game in monitoring again. So we're collecting data. Beach province is setting up sentinel plots to, to monitor and yep. collect corn borer larvae to test for resistance through bioassays at Ridgetown. Uh, University of Guelph Bridgetown campus, but we've also established a insect community practice for corn borer across Canada, trying to even understand it more across all the different crops, because we can't just keep looking at it in corn. It's not giving us all the context we need, because it can move back and forth. So assuming it's low in corn doesn't mean that it's always going to be low in corn, and that the population is not there to, to move in. Thankfully, we're not seeing so far, you know, widespread resistance, like we were concerned.
0: That yeah, said,
1: nice. it's still, uh, you know, something that can happen. So, with that community practice, we're establishing and monitoring the larval populations across these different host crops, as well. Mm-hmm. We've upped our game on trapping. So, a lot of the different jurisdictions and through the Great Lakes and Maritimes Pest Monitor Network, we're realizing we have to monitor for all three strains of pheromone uh, for, right. for corn borer. That's the Z strain or Iowa strain, the E strain. New York strain and even the hybrid where there's kind of a group that doesn't like exclusively one of the, other. they've kind of blended the spheromone plans yeah. and respond solely to themselves. So that's really also improved, but certainly we have strides to go. We want to work on improving lures and trap designs and just keep better monitoring of a pest that's been here for a hundred years or more. So it, it's kind of crazy, but um, yeah, it, it speaks to us needing to really not solely focus on BT hybrids, especially when it only has one working trait. So we can't mm-hmm. do that anymore. We need to have multiple traits and really use it where we need it. Yeah. And hopefully we can see more improved agronomics and, and hybrids in the lower heat units so that we can see that improve for all these, I wouldn't say ice, but pockets essentially where you can kind of contain your own corn borer population Yeah. an issue. So yeah. Stay tuned, but
0: lots of research on it now, thanks to this discovery. Western bean cutworm is another one that we found in all regions of Nova Scotia now. So we know that it's one generation per year and assuming that it's overwintering in the soil. So when should we be scouting for Western bean cutworm and what should we be looking for?
1: So this is another interesting one. It's a native pest in the Great Plains and arrived in the Great Lakes area around, started around 2006 and seven. Okay. And and is just continued to spread. So we had hotspots in what we would call Southwestern Ontario, like that were predictable for the first five, uh, even 10 years, but now they've really expanded. And that includes into, Eastern Ontario, Ottawa, Quebec, and over to you. And that Mm -hmm. says that they're more successfully overwintering in the soil. Like it's not just migratory. We knew they were overwintering for sure in uh, Southwestern Ontario. We know they are in Quebec. So likely, yeah, there's no reason they couldn't, at least at some level, be overwintering. Mm -hmm. But it's a tricky pest again. This is one that really, we had to change up all the recommendations that were originally known in Great Plains area. So one was we had to lower the threshold. And a lot of that is based on ear molds. This pest is not as much of a yield limiter. It's, it's mm-hmm. introducing ear molds into the plants. So if it's, it's not like a quality bad, factor, it's a quality factor. And if it's not a bad ear mold year, then you can tolerate some of the injury, but right. we can't yet predict well those ear mold years. Once we can, yeah. this, it'll be a game changer for this pest. But yeah. until then we have to do our best to keep the activity to the lowest we can in the ear, we're never, we're never gonna be 100%, never. No insecticide application can be 100%. But you at least wanna take down most of the population so it doesn't have a problem. So we suggest, and, and previous recommendations were monitor and look for the pest around pre-tassel to tassel. Mm-hmm. That was too early. This pest seems to have a longer flight period Mm-hmm. So we need to extend it. We need to protect the crop when most advantageous. And that's around the R1, R2, when you have a full tassel to before the tassel is completely spent and you've got browns. There's a, it's a twofold scenario with this. Traps are one, you have to have traps. Yep. Otherwise you're, you go blind trying, you're blinded, not knowing which fields to focus on and when yeah. to so yeah. you monitor the traps, you start to see populations increase, and you kind of guesstimate you know, when peak is, even if you're a week or so off on when peak might happen, at mm-hmm. least you're monitoring. You look across through the field. If during three weeks of scouting, any of those time periods, you've accumulated 5% of the plants mm-hmm. having egg masses, then you mm-hmm. will need a spray. And right. you want to spray when it's in the R1, R2 stage, because... This is the problem with this pest. They don't fully your feed at all. They mm. go up to the tassel for a little bit and feed on pollen,
0: yep. but
1: mostly they, their main goal is to head to the ear, feed on the yep. silks and head into the, the ear. But we really need to target the silk to get the most protection. Positive thing is we think at least three of the four main insecticides used provides about a two week residual, which is okay. amazing given- yeah, that's great. Um, it's not systemic, but it it's there. So again, as long as you time it so you're close to the peak flight just shortly after and it's R1, R2 stage, you have a you just then need to scout one more time at the end of the season to see if ear molds are developing. If they are, plan to harvest early to get out of that scenario. You're gonna have to dry the corn probably if it's if it's not silage corn, mm-hmm. but still you still have a window to miss the worst case scenario where your molds can set in culturally the best thing is to plant early as the earliest you can so that your crop is already in r1 or 2 before peak if it's possible right right because then it's less ideal less attractive for the moths they'll still be there Hmm. Um, but you know again you likely have fewer eggs in those plants than something that was planted later and is is developing to be ideal time for when peak flights happening. and it's not ideal but it's also that we will not see hundred percent control except for when we're using VIP. and <laughs> that's my next comment is that we also have to ensure that we're rotating any of the controls that we're using that yeah. includes using the vip you don't use it solely every year or we're going to have the same scenario that we had with corn bore because totally. um, it's showing that you know mid to later instars of the larva can tolerate this so we want to make sure we are changing it up yeah and even with the chemistries the insecticides the fully insecticides yeah. we need to rotate those too. rotate
0: everything this, rotate this... your proteins exactly your, your chemistry. Uh,
1: so that we can until we have another trait that we can that works on western bean, we Mm -hmm. really can't
0: solely focus on BT being our solution. We currently have fairly low levels of northern corn rootworm here in Nova Scotia, which I know is a big difference from what you have there in Ontario. So what are you seeing in Ontario when it comes to corn rootworm? Yeah, it's getting
1: kind of scary and concerning Mm -hmm. here. So we've had random cases of resistance popping up on occasion in the last you know five eight years but in the last two we had a perfect storm where conditions are ideal for adults to really do well Mm -hmm. and we have full-blown resistance in a um, a lot of different regions now which is concerning both western corn rootworm and we're even seeing northern corn rootworm too again it's interesting you start to realize there is a problem you start monitoring and you Drop those preconceptions you've had because it was always the understanding that it's mainly Western that's here in Mm. Ontario. Northern is really only Eastern Ontario, up in the states. We're seeing an overlap of these two populations, and so you know that increases the risk and opportunity. So again, BT hybrids were used. So well that it has enabled the corn-on-corn corn practice that we never yeah. used to encourage. You know, uh, yeah, totally. in the '80s we had disasters of corn-on-corn, corn, and then they realized we had to rotate. But then BT came in and enabled that practice again. And yeah. so we are now in a situation where three of the four BT proteins have been confirmed to have resistance in our populations. So Mm -hmm. we're starting to look very similar to what the U.S. was dealing with and is still continuing to deal with. And unfortunately, once you see the signs of injury, the abundant uh, populations of rootworm, the goosenecking, the the lodging and root clipping, you're already losing yield. So you can lose up to 50% or more in yield. And silage corn. Even worse, because once it starts lodging and goosenecking, it's very hard to harvest that and not get it contaminated with bacteria and soils. And because we also don't have a lot of chemical tools, we're losing the soil applied insecticide options to Mm -hmm. a great extent. So, you know, we now have to really work at rotating our management options, but also really paying attention and taking rotation in particular seriously before it's everybody's problem. Right. So we've established that network, the adult network, that it's at least alerting us to, you know, what are the populations like in this region relative to others, but mm-hmm. also, oh, this is a heavy dairy area or you know, livestock production, and we need to go out there and monitor more. And although the concept of rotation is there in people's minds, the reality of implementing it isn't necessarily you know, the top one or two priorities. Well, and when you're dealing
0: with, I mean, a limited land base, yeah, for sure, it's, it's so tough sometimes to rotate enough. We're kind of faced with a struggle. We can't fully
1: disclose cases. Companies need to confirm what they're seeing as well, and see the lab results. But we are trying to enable some information out there to help growers make management decisions. And some of that includes having a neighborly cooperation like yeah it, there's no use in having one measly field rotated out of corn when 95 percent of the rest of the surrounding area is right. corn as well it really comes down to understanding what your neighbor is also planting and kind of figure out if you can work in uh, you know trade some land that is going in the first year corn or coming yeah. from first year corn uh, things like that so you know, it has to be really, a
0: community approach. It does, Can't just be ways. one yeah. person out there fighting corn rootworm, and,
1: right? Because yeah. there's such a density of adult population, then that even if they don't want to lay eggs in soybean fields or other crops, they will just simply because yeah. there's not as not enough soil to lay their eggs in. The the number one feature is no longer solely relying on BT hybrids mm-hmm. because they're not going to work. There, there's cross resistance. Even if it's not there yet, it's coming. Yeah, And rotating out of corn at least a minimum every four years. Think of it as control, alt, delete. It reset the population because it will significantly drop the amount of eggs that are in that non-corn field so that when you come back in the next year with new crop of corn, the population's low enough that you shouldn't have to use any control option. Exactly. And really honing in on your third year of corn being the highest risk because it mm-hmm. takes a few years to build up that population, corn on corn, to really use your BT hybrids then. What we're trying to do here we, in Ontario, we've done five sites so far this previous year and a few more scheduled for this coming season, is those biocontrol nematodes. We're going mm-hmm. to try and implement them as well and hope that they cool. can help as an added, another cultural or I guess biocontrol, but different control strategy so that it's more IPM. So we'll have some rotation in that. We'll also have the nematodes and then bring in BT hybrids really only when necessary.
0: So where we we do have some corn rootworm, but I don't think we have a very good handle on how much, and so far, what we've seen is that it's fairly confined to some of our heavier dairy producing areas. So, we've seen some in the Annapolis Valley, and we've seen some in kind of the Truro Steuyak area. But obviously, we don't want that to get out of hand. So, what can we do where we were kind of at an earlier stage, I guess, of combating this pest than growers in Ontario? So, what can we do to? mitigate and hopefully prevent things from getting to that level.
1: I suggest sticky traps at least to be aware of what your baseline yeah. adult populations are like, right? And when they peak and how long they extend to the season, because that's a problem too, is that if they stay for two months in mm-hmm. that area, then there's a lot more dynamics going on. Yeah. Two, maybe even doing random root digs in these Fields. okay it just again having a uh, baseline of what kind of root clipping you're seeing with these yep. different events so that you're paying attention um, if there's opportunity to be collecting adults just to get a bio essays done that'd mm-hmm. be great but it typically happens once you suspect resistance um, but anything that we can do ahead of time would be substantial yeah. and even just really encouraging fields to be rotated out for one year. And, you know, we've looked into trying to land share, like swap land with typical three crop rotating grower or utilizing other feed. Honestly, it's worth their effort looking into those options now Mm -hmm. than when they have, when they're already losing 50% of yield and have to do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Try and figure out, rootworm really wants corn. So Mm -hmm. any other crop is better than corn um, going into the fourth year of that field. So any way that you can do that would be beneficial for you guys. And and growers should just always monitor their fields, look for those signs, the goosenecking, that bowing of the corn plants, or even just, wow, this year's got a lot of adults compared to last year, especially, you know, during you're starting to see tassel, We, we established that. We monitor in August typically, mm-hmm. but honestly, we're seeing adults as early as early July. So right. just keep an eye and say, wow, this year there's a lot and contact uh, contact you and contact the, your seed provider just so that they're able to go in and, and take a better look.
0: Yeah. and we are planning on having more site for our monitoring this year as part of the monitoring network so Great. hopefully that awesome. will help us get a a little bit more of a complete picture of how far things are spread. And, yep, and so that's on. awesome. We seem to have higher levels of corn earworm around in 2021 than we've seen in recent years. What approach should we take to scouting and managing for corn earworm? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep, we did too as well as fall armyworms so okay either of those two pests are what we would normally call late summer migrants that are coming right. from the state but they seem to be coming more frequently and something like well either of these is really not a pest that we can adequately control in field crops uh, yeah sweet corn sure because you can justify weekly sprays that they have to do <laughs> right. to, to keep them out of the ear but we just can't do that in field crops doesn't, um, make, economic doesn't sense. make economic sense <laughs> but the problem is a lot of our established knowledge on it is based on seeing infestations in august right, right. and we're starting to see them more in june and july which makes right. us go whoa so again either of these pests they're more of a you know introduce injury in the ear and promote ear mold scenario mm-hmm. so that's it's a matter of scouting and knowing that they're there and keeping an eye on if the ear molds developing and possibly harvesting early. The issue that we're seeing is that either of these populations are coming from the states. So they're already pre-exposed and especially corn earworm gets exposed to the cotton production too. Right. And their practices and their, their BT hybrids. So we already know they're resistant to a lot of the BT proteins. And in fact, We had smart stacks and other BT hybrids two years ago, maybe three, with corn earworm. A few fields just loaded with them, and so it showed that they were tolerant. Right. So currently, I'd say VIP is again one of the only ones that works adequately. But again, we're not wanting to plant VIP specifically for corn earworm, right? Right. It's a a spontaneous pest, so you know it's not a thing that we're going to need or be able to rely on hybrids completely. The next thing with a corn earworm in particular is that they lay their individual eggs on the fresh silks of the ear and they look the same color. It's not a pest you can scout other than (laughs) traps. So, you know, we are starting to increase our trap network. And ideally, you know, you hopefully would benefit from Ontario having more traps, New York having more traps, and monitoring that. Um, We need, you know, some more south of us to be aware. So that does help. But I fear this is going to be more prevalent um, because yeah. when you look at climate change modeling, they really do sense that this pest and, and maybe, well, fall armyworm, less so because it's a subtropic pest, but mm-hmm. worm will have the ability to successfully overwinter closer to the Great Lakes region. That means that we're going to start to see populations arrive much earlier. And that may change the dynamics of how we have to manage this. So until then, it's a matter of just monitoring the traps so we are aware of the flights and when they're coming in, scouting and looking for these larvae and then determining Sure, if the timing lands about the same as corn or Western bean cutworm and you can spray, you'll yeah. get protection for that. Right. <laughs> but the reality is likely not because there's more flights that come in. Yeah. Um, so then monitoring for if it if it's turning to be an, a good ear mold year, then mm-hmm. harvesting, flagging those fields and harvesting them as early as possible to reduce that risk. Situations that are now happening because of climate change, they're not in research to look at and Come to a solution
0: for. Yeah, so it hasn't happened before. It's happened, is, happened, new territory, new
1: territory, and so we, yeah, we are just trying to be more aware and hope that we can align some tools for when it becomes more of a continuous, <laughs> less spontaneous, yeah. always here problem.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, that leads. Really well into my next question, which is what impacts do you anticipate climate change will have on, on our corn yeah. pests? And we've touched on some of those things yeah, already.
1: So definitely the ability to overwinter more easily. Yeah. There's an opportunity for more generations. So Western bean, probably not. It still seems to be very much stuck in a one generation. But the others that like corn borer, mm-hmm. if, you, if you have one generation usually, you'll likely have two. Right. Um, if it, some of that may be a suicide, the second generation may be a suicide generation where it just can't finish its development before winter hits, but there probably is going to be some of the population that can. Right. Um, it only takes with, a few. Yep. Yeah, same with here. We may have three popul three generations.
0: Yeah. Um, the mm.
1: other aspect is because climate change may enable pests to be earlier they maybe come out of sync with their natural enemies, right? Natural enemies tend to have a little bit longer delay in getting going, recognizing they have to start building up their populations because this pest is here and there's a buffet, but that takes time. And so we may see like, you know, we know something like trichogramma is very good at controlling our corn borer eggs and some larva and same, they're using it on Western bean, but those specifically need the right host stage to work effectively and if it's just slightly out of sync from their host they may not do as well right so that we may see a lag or even a drop in populations like that so Mm -hmm. that's a concern as well and then just obviously it's going to change the farming practices we're going to see corn go in earlier which is great but how does that play out in terms of the synchrony with the pest and how many times do we have to protect the crop from that pest then because the crop is there longer? Yeah, I think, I suspect we'll have to find a way to make it economical to spray more than once in field crops, Um, whether partly because diseases even, but insects likely as well.
0: All right, I've got a scenario for you. So it's kind of a, a perfect storm. There are high populations of various corn pests That are causing crop damage in a single field in a single season. What type of strategy should we have for the coming year when it comes to selecting the appropriate BT trait package? The one aspect
1: is that it's rare to have back to back seasons where all of those dynamics could play out. But that's good news. That that is good news. (laughs) What's interesting is we really need to be starting to really pay attention to which bt proteins and i know it's hard Mm -hmm. there's a lot of marketing that really just says below ground above ground and it provides protection against but when you really look at the individual cry proteins or vit proteins that are in those events it becomes very clear that some are only there's only one single protein for that pest versus Mm -hmm. three yeah the majority of the traits out there are pyramided for corn borer that mm-hmm. is and for you guys that's great because corn borer is becoming a major pest again for yeah. us down here it's not but that is what all of the crop for that product, corn production out there yeah. has that's what they're targeting whereas really for us it's western bean cutworm or right. in the case of rootworm when when you start to look at what we know as some of the proteins they're becoming tolerant to then it starts to become fewer and fewer pyramid traits and becomes a single trait right it's really important to start to pay attention to what the proteins are in the the trait the different Mm -hmm. events and manage based on which one or two pests are your primary pests like the corn earworm isn't one like again, yeah. until you get it's hard to every predict every year, but maybe it's being western bean cutworm and corn borer, and uh, let's say rootworm, mm-hmm. then you want to make sure okay, for western bean, we have no choice, we only have vip, right? right? So, if you're gonna go for a year where you are bound and bent, you got to hit them all with BT and they're not going to spray, then mm-hmm. fine, make sure a vip's in there, but then also make sure your rootworm traits are not closely related all the cry threes are closely related so okay. we already know there's widespread resistance to thrive 3bb1 any of the others that have a three in it are going to be the same mode of action so right. change it up so that you're not going with two stack three a's uh, for rootworm to, to reduce that risk and corn borer well just make sure obviously <laughs> cry1f isn't in it for no. you guys but again don't think that that is a a good solution for the next year as well. Mm-hmm. Got to If you want to hit them once with the BTs, great, but then yes. change it up because it's yeah. There's too many situations in in especially our top three pests where there's tolerance and co- there could be a scenario where what you're assuming is a good pyramided trait, it has two trait, two BTs or even three BTs in it, mm-hmm. is actually a single BT protein. Right, because you have resistance the to the others. So, you know, I can't point to one specifically. I, I recognize there's a lot of marketing for certain ones out there. Yeah. But when you really drive into what pests, there's multiple proteins against. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, I know life's complicated and growers really have a lot already to focus on by getting more aware of what these different cries are and what they work towards and and we we do publish that we have that in the bt trait table for canada which is a
0: great tool yeah so i'll i'll be sure to share that in the show notes
1: (laughs) still complicated i know and i'm hoping we can find a a way to do it much more easily but pay attention to not only where we have a range of proteins that may or may not work on it but go look down lower at what the resistant what we know already about resistance towards those there's i think it's like table four on that um, list so that Mm -hmm. you're more aware of oh that one is the one that works these ones don't so you can, can get more knowledgeable on your decisions with these hybrids
0: yeah. And it's not necessarily reasonable to try to control everything all the time. No. You have to pick and choose what your your main we don't have a lot of sprayers in the province that can actually accommodate that spraying over that tall corn crop. So yeah. do you think that's something that an area that we're gonna have to change and improve upon in the future? I do. I do mainly because of also tar spot that's
1: coming in now right that's going to require that R1 R2 spray yeah and and when it comes to these pests again we're we're finding aerials okay but Mm -hmm. ground is really where it's at because it's not the tassel that we have to focus on we have to get it to the ear zone and and drone technology yeah there's some promise but they got to have some good water volumes to get down into the canopy again. So, yeah, and that
0: makes it so heavy. So, like... it makes it
1: heavy. And <laughs> I don't see that being the solution in the next five years for us for yeah. ear pests in particular.
0: What technology do we have that could help manage corn pests now and in the future? <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs>
1: It, it's true, right? We don't see the pipeline of synthetic pesticides. And, and that's mm. probably a good thing. The ones that are coming are pretty targeted, which is great. Yeah. But I see twofold. I think we're, RNAi. But again, mm-hmm. if we if we screw things up, you know, we could lose that pretty quickly. Because yeah. depending on how the mechanism of resistance towards it and the, the target that they use to approach with the RNAi could see cross resistance quickly but it again it can't be the only technology in Mm -hmm. the package it's got to be in combination and second i think there's a lot of promise with biosynthetics or biopesticides or Mm -hmm. biocontrol so i i these nematodes nematodes, um, maybe even entomopathogens like fungus that we can spray or incorporate into soils to help uh, they kill the insects. yeah Um, again Targeted, like the nematodes, we know are considered safe because they're native to North America, and we know they don't impact our beneficial pests. Right. So I, I do see a big change, I think, in focusing more on biocontrols as we go forward. And, and mm-hmm. sure, ladybugs, everyone thinks of, but you know they are very mobile and not very targeted. Yeah. But some of these others, the fungus, the nematodes, yeah. um, even parasitoids—I mm-hmm. think that's the next. Phase where we have to move towards to try and complement the other tools that we have, and obviously mm-hmm. rotating, not having yeah. monoculture constantly, any way of adding either strips of, I'd say, pollinator um, yeah. strips, or even something that can enable natural enemies and pollinators to be closer, right. um, but not in harm, to help into the field and into the field and. And help us out there too. So, I, cover yeah. crops may play a role, but they can also increase our risk depending on what species you use. But, yeah. something that can, because any of these natural enemies want flowers, they want pollen. Right. So, I foresee us taking an approach of more biodiversity within these fields to help target and trigger these biocontrols.
0: Right. What about pest modeling? Like, can we yes, use yes, that as a tool? As well? Yes,
1: of course. So, I think we're going to see an in, increase in both modern tools, trapping mm-hmm. other mechanisms that, and rapid detections, like, you know, yeah. they can do the DNA analysis right away. So we know what it is, mm-hmm. but then modeling, Yeah. We actually need to see a good investment in a modeling yeah. experts that can help us understand. Cause the positive thing with insects is they're very tied to temperature. Yeah. And that is, you can model that you can forecast it a bit too because usually temperatures are forecast better than rain yeah. forecast but yeah we we need to be utilizing modeling more to help predict our situation so we can act quicker too so yeah, yeah that's
0: a good point so i mean having a a really robust weather network station is going sure. to, or weather station network yes, <laughs> is going to yeah. be important as well. Yeah.
1: And, and calculating those scoring degree days and modeling out, we're working towards that. And some of that is still also needing to validate, make sure that this, yes. it does fit, you know, models are developed everywhere, but does it fit your own local scenario. But yeah, there's, there's promise in finally moving with combination of, of modeling and monitoring the traps and ground truthing and then these new technologies to help manage. It's yeah. promising. We know it works well for corn borer. Yep. Uh, we also have a grad student working, uh, looking at the modeling for western cutworm for our dry bean production, but it's the okay. same scenario can apl- be applied to corn. Yeah. Seeing if, if uh, models developed in the States do suit our purposes. So hopefully we'll have some more forecasting tools that we can yep. use for some of these pests. There's stuff in the
0: works. There's stuff in the works, for sure. Great. So we're both involved in the Great Lakes and Maritimes Pest Monitoring Network. How can producers use that information on the monitoring site to help make decisions about pests for their specific region?
1: Yes, we've had great uptake. Uh, yep. You know, this is a network that spans from Ohio to Michigan across to you guys, and even Manitoba is monitoring Western Maine Cutworm through it too. And yep. true so we continue to add more traps. Yeah, any that a grower can do, something simple like Western bean is a lot easier to monitor for. Mm-hmm. Something like corn borer is much more difficult because the ID um, yep. and they're not necessarily perfect. So we get a lot of catches of other moths. So it yes. makes it tricky, but regardless, even if you don't have a trap, though I encourage traps because it does give you a very local perspective of what's going on. Yep the sites free they can look at it themselves monitor the, the maps you can hone in on each of the six pests that we monitor for in this region but even more importantly paying attention to the trends of your neighboring jurisdictions so mm-hmm. you know for you i realize you know you don't have direct like, down down south from you but you do have new york yeah um and and quebec i rely on looking at what's going on in michigan and ohio too to kind of get a a sense because there's usually about a week delay in what they see and what we're going to see so that helps quite a lot in terms of of when you can even though you know you can figure out what's going on immediately in your region but also Mm -hmm. go well what's coming Um, yeah that to me is is big and you know we've had 1600 traps or so across the network varying pests obviously western beans the, the big one there i think there's yes like 700 or more of those traps or that but we keep adding because we realize yep. the value of it's one tool it's not it of course doesn't tell you when you need to spray but it tells you when the pest is arrived when what's going mm-hmm. on and when you need to scout and make those management decisions yep. so we're trying to always make improvements so it's easier for everyone to understand and see immediately it's real time, literally. Yeah. Trap counts that come in by midnight the day before are shown the next day so yeah we'll stay you know stay tuned we're, we continue to improve hopefully we can even have some of that modeling with the weather included but it really the value is in the collaboration across yeah. the different jurisdictions because we also as you know we meet and talk about what's going on and what we're seeing and yeah. try and
0: continue to improve our knowledge on each of these pests thank you so much for doing this and and sharing your wisdom. And yeah, as you said, we'll continue to collaborate and stay in touch on all these, all these fun corn pests that (laughs) we have to keep an eye on. (laughs) Yep. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Outstanding in the Field. Stay tuned for a written summary of the episode coming up in the next edition of the Croplinks Newsletter. Which you can subscribe to by visiting our website, www.perenia.ca. Subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on future episodes. Follow us on social media at NSPerenia. Thanks to Perenia for supporting this podcast and our marketing and communications team, Moira Anderson and Patty Ryan, for production and design. Resources from this episode can be found through the links in the show notes.